0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit stonegate-church.com. Okay, so we are in part two of a set of sermons uh, on Advent, on the coming of Jesus. And uh, let me just kind of get into where I wanna go uh, today by relating a story uh, for you. Years ago, I heard a pastor tell the story of uh, back when he had younger kids, Uh, he had a two and a half year old boy. And on one particular day, he was doing something in the living room. And like any parent, you have that, that moment go off in your brain when you recognize your house is way too quiet. Something's gotta be wrong. <laughs> and he had that moment. He's realizing his, his two and a half year old boy should be making more trouble and more noise than he's making right now. So obviously something has gone drastically you know, bad. And so he gets up and he gets on the prowl. He looks in the bedrooms, can't find him. Finally, he goes to the kitchen and there he finds this boy up on the counter, two and a half year old boy standing on the counter in the kitchen. So he's up on the counter standing there and to make matters worse, he's not just standing on the the kitchen counter, he has found the knives on the kitchen counter. So now picture the scene. You've got a, a, a dad who comes into the kitchen and at first, he's just kind of in awe. His, his two and a half year old son has somehow made it onto the kitchen counter. I mean, I, at first there is a little bit of awe thinking, is this a world-class athlete that I'm rearing? Like, how is, how is that even possible? And, and then that all goes to horror as he realizes, my, my my two and a half year old boy is on the counter and he's got a knife in his hand, but he's not holding the knife like he should be holding the knife. He's not holding the knife by the handle. He's got the knife by by the razor sharp blade. Now just picture yourself as a dad. You walk into the kitchen and you see that scene unfold. You would do just what this dad did. You would look at your son and you would holler at him. Wait, don't, don't move a muscle. Wait right there. I'll come and get you. That's exactly what he said. And this is exactly what you would say. And I think if you want to put Advent, the, the coming of Jesus into a succinct picture, that's your picture. It, it, it's the Lord saying, wait right there. I'll come and get you. You, me, the, the entire lot of humanity, we, we have found ourselves in a problem that we don't have the capacity to fix. We're in a mess that's beyond our capacity to clean up. When the Bible's describing our problem or our mess, it describes it as us being dead in our sin. That's how Ephesians two describes our mess. Uh, John chapter three describes our mess like this, that we are under the wrath of God. That's a bad mess to be in, isn't it? That's not where any of us wanna be, under the wrath of God. Um, Romans six describes our mess like this, that we are under the sentence of death. And, And all of these problems, they're too big for us to solve that they would be akin to the two-year-old up on the counter with the knife, you know, holding the knife by the wrong end of the knife, thinking that he's gonna be able to get himself down and all that's gonna go well. He, it's just beyond our capacity to fix. And so it's ours. It's beyond the capacity that we have to clean our lives up. And just like a good dad, God looks at us in our mess and in our problem and he hollers to us from across the room, hey, wait right there, I'll come and get you. That is what Advent is. This is what the coming of Jesus is. It's God saying, you're just in too deep to fix it yourself. So I'm going to fix it for you. I'm going to send my beloved son, Jesus. He's going to live for you. He's going to die for you. He's going to come back to life for you. And it's through my beloved son's life, death, and resurrection that I'm going to clean up your mess. I'm going to give you the help that you so desperately need. I'm going to give you the rescue that you couldn't give to yourself. If you want a way of thinking about the incarnation of Jesus, it would be this. The incarnation is God's announcement to humanity that help has arrived. When you're in a dark spot that you can't fix, isn't it a wonderful moment when help gets there? When the help you need arrives? The incarnation is God's announcement to humanity that help has arrived, that help is on the scene. Now, last week, uh, Ryan preached the first part of Luke chapter one, and didn't he do a great job? If you were here last week, he did such a great job. It was such a refreshing sermon to hear. He did such a great job. He was in the first half of Luke 1. We're going to be in the second half of Luke 1 today. And then we're going to tackle Luke chapter 2 next week. But, so we're in the second half of Luke uh, chapter 1. And, and really, we're going to have two different scenes here. There's two scenes. And then I want to finish the sermon by, uh, by just paying attention to how Mary responds. So we have two scenes and Mary's response. And here's scene 1. We have Gabriel and Mary. This is scene one, Gabriel and Mary. It starts in verse 26, says this. In the sixth month, now that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Going back to Ryan's sermon last week. Elizabeth is now pregnant. It's in the sixth month of her pregnancy. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Verse 27 He was sent to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. Now you might just circle that word Gabriel in that text in verse 26. Gabriel makes four appearances in the Bible, two in Daniel, two in Luke chapter one. And Gabriel, it says, is sent by God. And he's sent by God with an announcement. And this isn't any announcement. This isn't any message. This is is one of those messages that is about to turn the world upside down. Like literally moving forward from this announcement, the world is going to organize its history before and after this thing. It's that important, that big of a deal. It's a huge announcement. Now imagine you're Gabriel knowing God is sending you to deliver this big of an announcement. You're gonna be thinking like this. Well, I must be going to an important place for this announcement. If the importance of the announcement is up here, surely the place of this announcement is gonna be that important. So, So God, are you sending me to Rome? And God looks at, at Gabriel and says, no, we're, we're, you're not going to Rome. Uh, well, it must be Jerusalem then, right? Right, God? No, no you're, you're not going to Jerusalem. Dr- well, surely the temple, surely that's the place for this announcement. It's going to be, no, no, you're not going to, to the temple. Uh, you're actually going to the city of Nazareth. That, that, that's where you're going. Now, Nazareth is this small and insignificant town right? It's so insignificant and so small that that God actually has to give, you know, Gabriel the region before he can even make sense of the town. So you're going to go to Galilee. It's like the state. You're going to go to that that state. And then inside that state, you'll be able to find this little podunk town called Nazareth, this city. Now it says the city of Nazareth in, in verse 26. But that word city might be misleading because you might be thinking of a city like Midlothian or a city like Mansfield or Cedar Hill. It's not that kind of city, right? So so maybe think less city and more town, maybe even less town and more village. Think think of a village of maybe 50 people, maybe a hundred people in it. it. This is Nazareth. It's backwater, backwoods, insignificant, small little town. It's so insignificant and so backwoods. Think Poduck, backwoods, that sort of a place that when Nathaniel hears that Jesus came from Nazareth, he says, surely nothing good can come from Nazareth. Surely nothing good can come from there. And that's exactly where, where God is sending Gabriel. But, but if you're Gabriel, you're also thinking, well, well, surely if the message is this important, surely the person I'm going to deliver this message to has gotta be that important. So I, I know I'm going to Nazareth. It's in the middle of nowhere, but surely there's gonna be a celebrity in Nazareth, right, God? N- n- no, there's no celebrity in Nazareth, Gabriel. Surely there's gonna be an important person there, right, God? N- no, there's no important person there, there Gabriel. Surely there's going to be some big time religious leaders. I mean, somebody, it's a big deal. They're, they're, no, Gabriel, you're actually going to go to this little girl. Her, her name is Mary. Now, we know a few things about Mary. We know that she was young, a teenager, probably somewhere between 12 and 15 years old. That's, that's how old Mary is. We know that um, she's grown up in Nazareth, which means in this sort of a rural podunk sort of a town, she would have no access to education. So she was very likely illiterate. We know know that about her. Uh, We know that she's engaged to a blue collar construction worker named Joe. We know those sort of things about Mary. Uh, One commentator says this about her. From all indicators, her life would not be extraordinary. She would marry humbly. She would give birth to numerous poor children Never, never travel further than a few miles from home and one day die like thousands of others before her. A nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. That's Mary. Now look at verse 28. And he came to her, Mary. Gabriel came to Mary and said, greetings, O oh favored one, the Lord is with you. Mary, the Lord is with you but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of a greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor. You have found grace with God. You have found grace with God, Mary. I mean, now think about this. In the eyes of the world, Mary isn't a big deal. She's not a big person. She's a little deal, She's a little person in the eyes of the world. She is not significant. She is very insignificant. She is a no one from nowhere. And it's to this no one from nowhere that Gabriel comes with the most important message that's ever been announced. And he starts it by saying, Mary, insignificant Mary, little Mary, do you know this? The Lord is with you. The Lord cares for you, Mary. The Lord has looked upon you and he is showing you grace and favor, Mary. Isn't that amazing to consider? And I think in a lot of ways, this scene in the Advent story is a picture of how the Lord works in the world. It's a type, it's a picture of the Lord's work. There's an interesting moment in Matthew chapter five where Jesus begins probably his most famous sermon. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And he gathers his disciples and the people around him, a crowd. And here's how he starts his most famous sermon. Matthew five, verse three. First words out of his mouth blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice what he, what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, blessed are the strong for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He, he doesn't say, blessed are those who have it all together for theirs is the kingdom of, of heaven. He, he doesn't say, blessed are the independent. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say blessed are the powerful for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now with that opening statement in Jesus's sermon, Jesus in a lot of ways reveals the key to the Christian life. And here it is. It's not power. It's not prestige. It's not your significance. It's not your self-reliance. That the key to the Christian life is poverty of spirit. Poverty of spirit. To be poor in spirit is to know that we have nothing and God has everything. It's the opposite of pride. Uh, To be poor in spirit is less a single act that we do and it's more of a posture of our heart, how we see God, how we see ourselves, how we see the world around us. Uh, Being poor in spirit is to continually come to God knowing that we are weak and needy and he is strong and sufficient. It's the heart that realizes that the only thing we bring to God is our need. That's it. We don't bring our strength to God and, and God sit back and think, man, that's really impressive. You should keep, no, no, it, it, poor in spirit. That, that person, that, that person who, who has poverty of spirit realizes the only thing we are bringing to the equation is our great need before God. I mean, this is the ironic thing about the kingdom of God, isn't it? The ironic thing is that those who think they have get nothing from God. And those who know they have not get everything from God. I mean, hear that. This is the ironic upside down nature of the kingdom of God. Those who think they have get nothing from God. Those who know they have nothing, it's those who get everything from God. I mean, the Bible makes the point over and over and over and over again, you can't miss this if you read the Bible, that the grace of God always flows downhill. The grace of God always flows away from self-sufficiency and down toward the needy. It always flows away from the strong and down toward the weak. It always flows away from the self-satisfied and down toward the hungry and the empty. It always flows away from those who think they have and it flows toward those who know they have not. The grace of God always flows downhill. Isn't it amazing to think Jesus is actually drawn to, he's drawn into our weakness, not our strength, our emptiness, not not our fullness, our our humility. This is is what draws Jesus in. This is what Jesus is drawn to, our weakness, our emptiness, our humility. And doesn't that confront us all? You know, I don't know about you, but I have have an allergic reaction to weakness. Like the default of my heart just runs towards strength. What wants to be self-dependent, self-sufficient, self reliant self-everything. My heart just goes there. I find that I am so often sitting in the pew with the church of Laodicea as Jesus corrects them and says this to them in Revelation chapter three, verse 17. He looks at the church in Laodicea and me and says, hey, for, for you, you know what you say? Here's what you say. You say that I am rich, that I have prospered, that I need nothing. I find myself so often really believing that deep down. Maybe not saying it, but really believing it, acting like it's true. You say that I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. But here's what you don't realize. You're not realizing that here's the truth about you, that you're really wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now those words, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, they don't describe some of us in the room, they describe all of us in the room. And being poor in spirit means that we have stopped running from those words and we have humbly embraced them as, yeah, that's, that, that's our neediness, that, that we're not full, that we are empty, we, we don't see, we, we are blind, that we actually need God. Did you come in here today just, just knowing how needy you are? feeling your weakness, just, just knowing that you just have so little to contribute. Did you come in feeling that today? If you did, Jesus is saying, That's, there's good news for you then. that The moment you feel that is the moment my greatness and my fullness can then break down the door of your life and come on in. That The moment you feel that, the moment you know that, that's the moment my grace is about to flow into your life. My fullness is about to break into your life. The moment you realize you're weak and you're needy is the moment I come in with my strength and my fullness. Mary reminds us that this is how the Lord works. He's drawn toward weakness. He's drawn toward emptiness. He's drawn toward the lowly and the humble. I mean, isn't it, isn't it crazy to think? I mean, you put yourself in the place of God for just a minute. It's a scary thing, but just do it for a moment. And you're about to start a movement that's going to change the world. World's going to be upside down. Where are you going to go? I just doubt any of us would look at the world and say, you know where I'm going to go? Here's where I'm going to make the announcement that's going to get this thing started. I'm going to go to Nazareth and I'm going to find this girl named Mary and I'm about to give her the goods. I doubt anyone in the room is saying that, but this is how God works. He's drawn toward weakness, emptiness, humility, the lowly. I love how one commentator says it. He says, the greatest news news ever proclaimed in Israel came to the humblest of its people. That's how God works. And then you pick it up in verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. So Gabriel comes to Mary and announces to Mary, here's what's about to happen. You're about to conceive and have a baby boy. And as Gabriel is describing the baby boy, he is describing Jesus for us. He's telling us about Jesus. And I just wanna highlight six things that we learn about Jesus in this passage. Six things that we learn about Gabriel's description of this baby that's gonna be in Mary's womb and, and, and Jesus. Number one, we learn that Jesus is proof that God makes good on all of his promises that Jesus is proof that God makes good on all of his promises. When Gabriel Gabriel is describing uh, Jesus, he's not just describing, giving kind of a general description of any child. That's not what he's doing. He he is describing a specific child, the the long promised child, the long awaited Messiah. That's who he's describing in this moment. Gabriel is describing the one promise all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Our first parents sin against God and then God makes a promise. There will be one come from the woman, come from the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. It's that child that he's describing. It goes all the way back into passages like Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, where we learn that Jesus is prophesied. God promises that that this, this coming child, this long awaited Messiah is gonna be born of a virgin. These are the sort of promises that Jesus fulfills. The birth of Jesus is God making good on all of those Old Testament promises, all of those foreshadowing, all of those predictions. It's God making good on every one of those promises. Now, how do we receive that? Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones describe this. He says it this way. What God did when he sent his son into the world is an absolute guarantee that he will do everything he has ever promised to do. I love that. Advent is meant to remind us. When God sent his son into the world, it's meant to remind us that it's an absolute guarantee that God will now do everything he has promised to do. How do you know that God isn't going to abandon you? Some of us right now in this room, your life has literally fallen apart. How do you know God hasn't abandoned you? How do you know that God really is going to work all things for your good if you're in Christ? How do you know that? Do you know the Bible's answer to that? The incarnation is how you know it. The incarnation is God's proof that I will fulfill every promise that I have ever made to you. There there won't be one promise that I will fail to you. Jesus is proof that God makes good on all of his promises. Number two, we learn that Jesus is fully man. We learn that that God really does become a man. Is that not mind-blowing? God becomes a man. We learn that Jesus actually has a mother, that Jesus was born, that his mom changed his diapers, cleaned his ears. I mean, just think about the humility of God. If you were God, would you condescend to the point of, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wear diapers for a while. That is the humility of God. Can you believe that? That God is unlike any God out there. So so he has a mom. His mom changed his diapers, cleaned his his ears. Uh, Jesus went through puberty. Jesus went through growth spurts. Luke chapter two says he grew up in wisdom and stature. And more importantly, Jesus suffered just like you and I suffer. He was tempted just like you and I are tempted. He experienced life's difficulties just like you and I experience life's difficulty. He was fully man, but we also learn here that he is fully God. He's fully God. When Gabriel says that he'll be the son of the most high in verse 32, or if you skip down to verse 35, that he'll be the son of God. He's not just giving kind of a general way to think about Jesus. He's giving Jesus a divine title. That's, that's what the son of God or the son of the most high is. It's a divine title. And Maybe you can think of it this way. Gabriel is clarifying for us. Hey, do you know the stuff that Jesus is gonna be made of? That that, that stuff that Je- It's the same stuff that God is made of. And the same stuff that God is made of, Jesus is gonna be made of the exact same thing. That that everything God the Father is, his attributes, his nature, you're gonna find those in in God the Son, in Jesus. That's what he's clarifying for us. Or as John says it in John chapter one, uh, when you see Jesus, it's as if God has peeled back the blinds to who he is so that you can peer in and see all the way down into his heart. That's Jesus. He's fully man and he's fully God. Then number four, we learn that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Look in verse 32, Gabriel says that he will be great And will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Now now that phrase, the throne of his father, David, that takes us back to 2 Samuel 7, where God made a promise to David. Here was the promise he made in 2 Samuel 7. David, I'm gonna raise up a kid after you. And that kid is going to sit on your throne and he's going to establish your kingdom forever. And I'm gonna be a father to him and he's going to be a son to me, David. That's what I'm promising to do for you. And and part of what Gabriel is doing here is showing us that promise that God made in 2 Samuel 7 went far beyond Solomon who who reigned in David's David's place. It went far beyond, that promise went far beyond Solomon. That that promise goes all the way to the New Testament and reaches inside Mary's womb and is found in Jesus. That's what it's showing us that Jesus is the king. And it says he is going to be a great king. He is great. He's not gonna be like any other earthly kingdom. He is going to stand alone in his significance. Jesus is going to be great. Jesus is king. Number five, we learned that Jesus is unavoidable. Do you, do you know one of the things, I, I don't know if you share this or not, but one of the things I really appreciate about our governmental sort of system is that if you don't like a president of the United States of America, do you know all you have to do is wait? Wait. That's all you have to do is just wait four years, maybe eight years, and a new one's gonna get elected, right? That's one of the things I most appreciate about our governmental system is our presidents are avoidable in that sense. But you know, that's, that's not true with Jesus. Jesus isn't going away in four years. He's not going away in two terms. Look at how he's described here in verse 33. Gabriel says, Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So so it's not just a few short years, a few short terms. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. In other words, Jesus isn't a fad. He's not in one day and out the next day. That that is not Jesus. Jesus stands over history, and one day, all of history will culminate in him. And from the least of people all the way to the greatest of all earthly kings, Hebrews chapter— or. uh, Philippians chapter two says, will one day find themselves bowing before Jesus, the great King. He's unavoidable. And either we bow before him now in great joys, we surrender our life to him, or we bow before him later in great horror. And I just wonder if you've, if you've reckoned with Jesus, he is unavoidable. You, you can't live and die in this world and avoid Jesus. He is coming for us all right? And I just wonder if you have dealt with him, if you've offered your life to him, if you surrendered to him. Jesus is unavoidable. And sixthly, we learn that Jesus is our savior. You know, the the more kids we had, the more I started to dread the whole kid naming moment. I mean, you don't want to wreck a kid's life by their name, you know? I mean, there's a little bit of pressure built into the naming thing. And I love in this passage, Gabriel just, he takes the pressure off. He names the kiddo, the boy that's gonna be in Mary's womb, he names the kid four. In verse 32, he looks at Mary and says, you shall call his name Jesus. That's gonna be his name. You don't have to worry about his name anymore. That's gonna be his name and that name's gonna fit him perfectly. Ironically, do you know what the name means? Salvation. It's a prophetic name. It's a name that's telling us something about the person and purpose of Jesus. It's salvation. And it's interesting in Matthew chapter one, verse 21, when the angel tells Mary again to, to name him Jesus, he translates why. He, here's the reason you should, you should name him Jesus. He, he interprets the moment for us. And he says this, you shall call his name Jesus. And here's why you should do that. For he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. This little boy in her womb would grow up to be a man who would live perfectly, who would die undeservedly and would raise from the dead on the third day, creating a way for rebels like you and me to be brought into the family of God and called friends of God. That's what Jesus would do. That's who he is. This is the purpose of his life is to open up the way for you and I to be reconciled and brought into God's family. And Gabriel is looking at Mary and saying, this is Jesus. This is the one that's gonna be in your womb. This is the son that you're about to have. He is about to be the savior of the world. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but if I were in Mary's shoes, I would be looking at this thinking, uh, God, you're gonna have to throw me a bone to believe this. I mean, how, how is this gonna happen to insignificant little me? How in the world could this be my life? How in the world could this be my story? How could this happen? Mary goes, the the story goes on in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Mary is not educated, but she, she knows her biology stuff, right? She knows that this is not the normal way for this to go down, right? She she knows how this this normally works. How how is this gonna be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Now there's all sorts of Old Testament imagery built into those metaphors to to come upon you, to overshadow you. All sorts of Old Testament imagery there. We're gonna keep going. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And, and Mary as a sign to you to help build your faith so you know this is gonna happen to you, Mary. Think about this, verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, every time that poor lady is introduced, it has her age in there. <laughs> I mean, it's as if she's as good as dead in the Bible, right? I mean, she cannot catch a break. As a sign to you, Mary, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with which, uh, with which her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. For nothing will be impossible with God. Aren't we grateful that that's our God? That nothing will be impossible with him? That we serve a God who never comes to a problem he can't fix, never comes to a mess that he can't clean up. That's our God. Nothing is impossible with our God. We serve the sort of God who can open up the womb of an elderly woman like Elizabeth. We serve the sort of God who can take a virgin like Mary and give her a son. That's the sort of God, Advent is reminding us, that's the sort of God that you have can take a virgin and give her a son. We serve the sort of God who can enter into human history as the man, Jesus Christ. That that sort of a God, that that sort of a miracle. We serve the sort of God who can rise from the dead. We we serve the sort of God who can save us from our sins. We we serve the sort of God who can forgive us of our sins due due to the work of Jesus on the cross. We serve that sort of God who can make enemies his friends. That is the sort of God we, we serve. And the incarnation is reminding us nothing is impossible with this God. Nothing is impossible with this God. I just wonder how many of us came in this morning and our whole expectation of life has been dumbed down to just what we can kind of see and accomplish down here. That that our our desires and our expectations of God have somewhere along the way diminished so greatly that, that it's just down here and what we can kind of do and kind of make happen. The incarnation reminds us that's not the God of the Bible according to the God of the Bible, your marriage is always redeemable. Do you know that? You serve a God who nothing is impossible for him. Your marriage isn't impossible for him. You know the change that you have so long waited for and hoped for and have been co-laboring with the spirit for? That change is not impossible. You know that relationship that's so broken that you just don't ever see how it could be mended? Mending that relationship isn't impossible. You know, when you look back over your life and you just see the ashes of your life, That I mean, you have been a great kind of personal arson in your story. And, and you look back and just see the shreds and the ashes of what you have done. The incarnation reminds us that It's not impossible for God to mend that story back together, for God to restore your life. It's not impossible for God to do that. For nothing will be impossible with God. The the incarnation reminds us of the reason that followers of Jesus should be the happiest and the most hopeful people on the planet. And you know why that is? We serve a God who can do the impossible. And when we, when we see that and know that, do you know what it does to our heart? It begins to raise our hope. It begins to, to, to raise our level of enjoyment in this world that we have a God who can do anything. It makes Christians the happiest and the most hopeful people on the planet. We serve a God like that. There's never a moment in our life where our expectations of life, our hope for life have to shrink down to just what we can do. Our hope and expectation can always be as big as what God can do. Scene number two, that's scene number one, Gabriel and Mary. Here's scene number two, Mary and Elizabeth. Starting in verse 39, it says this. "'In those days, Mary arose and went with haste "'into the hill country, to a town of Judah. "'And she entered the house of Zechariah "'and greeted Elizabeth. "'And when Elizabeth heard of the greeting of Mary, "'the baby leaped in her womb.'" That was John's first prophetic moment of pointing to the way of Jesus. Again, every time she's mentioned, it's in connection with her old age and oftentimes her barrenness, that she could, not, she could not conceive and have a child. As a matter of fact, if you look in verse 36, it says that she was called barren. So if she was known by the name Elizabeth. She was equally known by the name barren. This is, this is what people called her. This is how they referred to her. She was called barren. That, that was her name. She endured, think about her life. She has endured for years, I mean, decades of her life, multiple decades of her life, that monthly sort of roller coaster of expectation and disappointment. And then finally, in her old age, God intervenes and she concedes and has in her womb a prophet. John the Baptist was growing in Elizabeth's womb. Now think about Mary on the other end of this. Mary was just the opposite. She had never known the pain of barrenness. She had never suffered the reproach of barrenness, all all the consequences of being barren in that day and age. She had never endured any of that. She had never been on that monthly roller coaster of expectation and disappointment. She had not had the long years of heartache that are associated with that. Now link those two stories together. Think of Elizabeth. She is about six months pregnant at this point. And now Elizabeth is like the thing in town at this point. She is the one that in her old age God has opened her womb and she's got a prophet growing in there. I mean, she is in the spotlight. Her Twitter followers have just gone up by like thousands a week. She's getting the calls for all the interviews. I mean, she is living in the center of attention until Mary comes along. And all of a sudden you have Mary who has received a greater miracle, and in Mary's womb is a greater man. It's Jesus Himself. God Himself is in her womb. And you know what's amazing about this passage? There isn't a single hint of jealousy in Elizabeth. I just love that. There's not a single hint of jealousy as Elizabeth praises Mary and the work of God in her. Now think about that though. Mary did not endure the years of reproach and barrenness. She didn't walk the long road of pain and shame and disappointment. But when Elizabeth hears that Mary is pregnant with the son of God in her womb, she could rejoice with her. Now, I think there's something there for us. And the something would go like this. Embracing the story that Jesus is writing for our life without envying other people's story, without coveting what God is doing in their story, embracing our story, the one that Jesus is writing for our life creates new capacity for joy and thanksgiving. It's so so freeing and, and so wonderful in our life when we can see others blessed by Jesus in ways that we have not been blessed by Jesus. It's so freeing when we can watch them not have to walk a painful road that we had to walk in our story and still celebrate them and still celebrate the work of Jesus, rejoice in their life. And this is what Elizabeth is doing. Elizabeth sees that God is doing something unique in her own life, writing a unique story for her and a unique story for for Mary's life. And she embraces her story without coveting Mary's story. And I just wonder, have you done that yet? Have you made peace with the story that God is writing in your life? Have you embraced your personal story that God is unfolding and writing right now for you? Are you embracing it without coveting and envying other people's story? You know, there's this interesting uh, passage at the end of uh, the gospels where the resurrected Jesus has come back and he's talking, Jesus is talking to uh, Peter and John and he's talking to Peter and he, he is telling Peter the difficulty of what lies before him. He, he's, he's telling Peter part of Peter's story that's on the horizon. And he's telling Peter that the, the brutal death that he is one day going to die for Jesus's sake. In the middle of that moment, uh, Peter looks at Jesus and then looks at John and's like, well, what about his story then? Tell, tell me something about his story. And I think Jesus is looking back at him in that moment. It's like, well, why are you worried about his story? This is your story that I'm telling you. And you've got to learn to embrace your story without coveting and being envious of John's story. So so why don't you work on this, Peter? Why don't you embrace the story that I am writing for you? And, And this is exactly what Elizabeth has done in this. She knows God is writing her story and it's unfolding within the larger story of God. And and Elizabeth is just so grateful and thankful and celebrating that God is writing her story at all, that somehow she is caught up into this larger story. She's embraced her story. And I just wonder how many of us need to do that this morning. How how many of us need to to just, probably just need help from, from the Holy Spirit this morning to embrace the story that God is writing in our life without envying others' story to embrace your marriage. Have you embraced your marriage without envying and coveting other people's? Have you embraced your life as a single without coveting other people's story, the story that God is writing in their life? Have you embraced your your job or your position in life without coveting and and running after the the other one that that person has? Have Have you embraced your kind of financial position without coveting other people's? Have you embraced your family, like your kids, without coveting other people's? Have you, have you embraced the suffering that God has dealt into your life without growing bitter and without, without being mad that that person didn't have to go through that, but I did, God. Have you embraced your losses and your limits without being envious of other people? And I think there's just an encouragement in this story, in this moment of the Advent story, to just say to us, allow God to say to us this morning, to say to me, don't despise your story, the one that God's writing for you. Trust the one who's writing it. And some of us right now, we are in the middle of our story that God's writing for us. And all of a sudden we just took a really hard, it just took a really hard turn, a really hard switch that we would have never have drawn into our story, that we never would have wanted in our story. Maybe it's cancer has come into our story. Loss has come into our story. Hardship has come into our story. Suffering of all sorts has come into our story. And at the same time, you're seeing other people not have those things. Other people are flourishing in ways that you wish you were right now. Trust the one who's writing your story. And not every scene in your story or my story is going to be happy, but we get to trust the one who's writing it. We, we get to trust that our story is unfolding in that larger story of God. And God is writing both of those. And one day, everything that feels unresolved in our story, God will one day resolve. So trust the one writing your story. Don't, don't despise your story. And let me finish here with Mary's response. In a lot of ways, Mary is... A model for what vibrant faith looks like is it responds to the work of God in our life. And let me point out two, two ways that she responds here, two things about her response. Number one, we see submission in Mary, submission. Now, when you think about Mary's life in this moment, it's important to know this is not a risk-free moment for Mary, right? This is not risk-free. Um, she knows how people typically get pregnant. Mary knows that. Joseph knows that. And all of a sudden, Mary is about to show up to Joseph and she's about to be pregnant. She loves this man, they're engaged. And she's gonna be dealing with all these questions. How is Joseph gonna respond to that? What's he gonna do in that? Is he gonna put me away? Is he going to embrace me? What is Joseph's response to that gonna be? Mary is also aware of the Old Testament. And although it wasn't commonly practiced in the New Testament times, she was aware that adultery was punishable by death. She doesn't know how this is gonna go. And by the way, Mary is like 14, 15 years old, probably in this, this story. And think about your 14 or 15 year old self. It's kind of scary, isn't it? But just think about your 14 or 15 year old self. Think about all the ambitions you had all the desires you had, all the things you wanted to see, all the things you wanted to do, what you wanted your life to be like. Mary had all of those ambitions. And this this announcement, this moment in her life is a moment where all of those things were put on the table and she knew many of them would be dashed to pieces. So this is not a risk-free moment, but look how she responds in verse 38. And Mary said, "'Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. "'Let it be to me according to your word.'" Wow. Wow. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. I'm the, the servant of the let it be. Let it be to me according to your word. She's saying, God, here's my life. All of my dreams, I'm surrendering to you. All of my hopes, I'm giving to you. Everything I'm wanting in my life, I'm giving all of those things to you. I'm submitting all of those things to you. God, what you will is what I want. So let's do that. What you're seeing in Mary is full-on surrender. She has answered yes to God. God, here is my yes. It's on the table. I'm backing away from it. Now you get to do whatever you want to with that yes. It's not a yes and, and then, God, let, let me tell you what I will and won't do. No, it's yes, God. Now, whatever you want to do, God, it's what, what you will is what I want. Let it, let it be done to me according to your will. And notice in this, in this verse, Such an important little observation here. Her obedience is rooted in her identity. Do you you see that? Her obedience, let it be done according to your word, is rooted in, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. This is who I am. I, Mary, I am a servant of the Lord. Do you see yourself that way? I mean, think about a servant. A servant doesn't have rights to the master, does it? A servant isn't coming to the master saying, hey, okay, now let's negotiate. You can get a little bit of what you want. I'm gonna get a little bit of what I want. That's not how how a servant works. A a servant doesn't come to the master and say, hey, let me tell you how this is about to go. That's not what a servant does. A servant says, I am at your full disposal. What you you will is what I want. That's what a servant does. And this is what Mary does. And her obedience is rooted in that identity, that that servant identity. Now, let me ask yourself, do you see yourself that way? Do you see yourself as a servant of the Lord? See, if if right now between you and God, you're saying to the Lord, hey, you can come this far, but no further, God. I'll go this far with you, but, but no further. You can ask this much of me, but don't ask a single thing beyond that. God, I'll do X, Y, and Z, but these things over here, that, that's, I'm not in for those things. You, you may be relating to God as a lot of things, but you're not relating to him like a servant would his master. I just, I just wonder, are you seeing your life like a servant? I wonder how many of us today need a fresh awakening of, God, you're the master. You're my good dad. I'm the kid. I'm the servant. God, what, what you will is what I want. And here's the second thing we see about Mary's response. We see singing. You get submission and you get singing. And this is verses 46 through 56. She submits and then she sings. So her submission, Mary's submission, was not a begrudging submission. It was not a, gosh, I I guess I will if I have to, God. It's not what it was. Her submission was a glad-hearted, humble, I can't believe I get to be a part of this with God. It was that sort of a submission. That's what was happening inside of Mary. Her heart was so full of joy and gratefulness that ordinary speech couldn't even express it. See, this is the thing about prose. Prose is ordinary speech. It's how I'm talking to you today. There's a a limit to ordinary prose. There's a limit to how much much joy and how much emotion words can convey in prose format. There's a limit to it. By the way, this is why God has gifted us with poetry and song. Because poetry and song take human emotion and they take it further. They express it more clearly than speaking words like I'm doing could ever do that. That's why God has gifted us with with poetry and singing. And what we have here is such a deep, such a deep thankfulness. Such a wide sense of gratitude that prose would no longer work, and she breaks out into poetry. She breaks out into song. And listen to what she says first couple of verses of the song My soul magnifies the Lord, it magnifies the Lord, it blesses the Lord, it adores the Lord. It is lost in wonder and awe of God. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. But my heart is just overflowing with gratitude and thankfulness at what God has done in my life. That he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. That he has saw fit to come into the life of the lowly, the humble, the empty, the weak, the powerless. My, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. What, why? Verse 49 tells us, he who is mighty has done great things for me. He who is mighty has done for me what I could never do for myself. He who is mighty has dealt with the problem of my sin in ways that I could never deal with it. He who is mighty has dealt with the gap between me and God and has made a way for, he who is mighty has done great things for me. Now, I just wonder how many of our souls need to be unhinged to get past our prose and for a song to come up out of our soul. So will you bow with me right there where you are? I'm gonna give you a moment to just allow the Lord to deal with your heart. regardless of where we are in life, what's happened in our life, if we are a follower of Jesus, there's not a one of us who can't sing, sing along with Mary. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he, my God has looked upon the humble estate that I'm in. My God, he who is mighty, my God has done great things for me. I just wonder if some of us has grown numb to the mighty things that God has done, the good things that God has done. I Just wonder how many of us need to have souls break out in fresh song today as we thank God, as we magnify God as we express our thankfulness as God, to God, as we bless God, as we adore God. So just there where you are, I'm, I'm just praying that the Lord would sink into your soul what would be most helpful for you. Oh God, would you help us embrace our weakness? Would you do that? Would you come into our weakness today and fill it with the fullness of you? God, would you pour your grace downhill into this room, into the lowly today? Oh God, would you give us a fresh view of Jesus? The long promised Jesus, that the guarantee that you're gonna come through on every promise, fully God, fully man. The the King Jesus, who will reign forever, the the unavoidable Jesus, our Savior. God, would you give us a fresh view of Him? God, would you you thaw out our cold hearts and, and put a song in our soul as we see Him this morning? God, would you help us embrace our stories? God, would you help us receive the story that you're writing for our life without envying others? And oh God, would you give us fresh submission today? May we all right now in this moment, Father, look up to you and in a fresh new way, say to you today, God, I'm your servant. May it be done to me according to your word. Whatever you want, whenever you want it, yes, God, yes. Oh God, would you meet us here now? Would you meet us? And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.